Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Some people like to talk in hushed tones about the deep state, the inner machinery of government where the power really lies, the place where big picture policy is actually decided. Well, in the world of foreign policy and grand strategy, you'd struggle to find anyone who better understands where the power really lies, what the deep state are really thinking, than Edward N. Lutwak. He's been in and out of the Pentagon since the 1980s. He literally wrote the book on coup d'etat and strategy, both of which have been translated into 30 plus languages and are taught at university classes worldwide. He's been an advisor to presidents, prime ministers, to the Dalai Lama. He's a cattle farmer in Bolivia. And to crown off all of these achievements, he's a regular contributor to Unheard. Taking time from his role advising the American government, Edward Lutvak is all ours for the next hour to find out what is really being said behind closed doors about Ukraine, China, and grand American strategy. Welcome to Unheard, Edward. Let me make a, an important correction, although it's only important for me, and that is I'm not a cattle farmer in Bolivia. If I were a farmer of any kind, I wouldn't be able to do any of those things. I'd be on my farm. I, this is ranching. And actually, it's granging. It's just simply you have a large area of grass, and the the uh, the heifers and the bulls walk around, and they sometimes make babies. And then you remove the babies, but all you do is keep the fence. And so you don't. This is not animal husbandry. You're not there when they give birth. They do it all on their own. And that's why one can do that and do other things. Anyway, very good. So and are you point. where? Are you in Bolivia now, or are you in the U.S.? No, no, I'm in the U.S. I mean, my study here. We'll start a. We'll have a separate show. We'll have a separate show about the the ranching and how that works. Let me let me dive into um, really what happened this past week. Uh, we've had the NATO summit. We had what seemed to be a little bit of a moment of tension, an unusual moment of tension between President Zelensky of Ukraine and some of the Western powers. He complained that the wording of the NATO communique was absurd. It didn't give him enough of a promise. And the, the Defence Secretary here in the UK actually responded by saying a little bit of gratitude would go a long way. And it seemed like maybe a slight shift in tone. Do you, did you observe that? There's much more, there's much more than a shift in tone. Uh, there is a shift in the overall situation. First, the Ukrainians launched their all-out offensive and they encountered the new Russian army. When Russians go to war, they always mess up because the autocrats and dictators always pick generals who are no good and things like that. Then it, the, in a second year of a war, when other people surrendered, the Russians start fighting seriously. And as you know, the Ukrainians launched uh, an all-out offensive, and after several days, were reporting the capture of a village. Okay, they didn't advance by 10 miles or 50 miles or 100 miles. They advanced the depth of a village. So in other words, they encountered the strong Russian army the second year of a war. Fight the Russians, win the first year, because the second they get stronger. And that's what's going on. The second thing is, that the President Biden made the clear decision that Ukraine shall not be invited to join NATO. The reason he did that is because that is what's called the bargaining chip and for the, with the Russians. And you have a bargaining chip when you want to talk to the Russians, when you want to resolve, the, you want to find a way out of this war. You want to negotiate. Now, the other signal was that 
the head of the CIA, who is not one of his usual CIA uh, time service officials who always screw up everything, but is Mr. Burns, a very experienced diplomat, who is very much Biden's man, very much Biden's man. Burns uh, responds to the Pirogian, uh, what I call labor protest or trade union protest, and, uh, or uh, misrepresented as a mutiny or even coup or whatever. He calls Narishkin, Narishkin, who's the head of the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, his direct counterpart, calls Narishkin and tells him, we have nothing to do with this state. We have nothing to do with Pirojin Kun. Why does it say that? Because, uh, because um, noisemakers in Russia said that this was a CIA something rather. People really didn't know anything at all. We have no idea who Pirojin is, what's his relationship with Putin is and so on. So anyway, Burns took the opportunity to call Narishkin. Narishkin took his call. Now, we should know who Mr. Narishkin is. He is the head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, who was cut out of the Ukraine decision under the fiction that Ukraine belongs to Russia. Therefore, it's the purview of the FSB, which is the domestic system. It's like giving a job to the security service, uh, you know, MI5, they call it, as opposed to MI6, this, you know, the secret intelligence service, because you claim that it's British, you know, it's not far. So, Narishkin, by the way, is the person who, before the war started, told Putin directly, saying, don't do it. You have a problem with Ukraine? Talk. Don't fight. Don't start the war. So we have somebody in the Kremlin who took that position, who hasn't been fired, and was still there in charge of SVR. We have the American head of intelligence calling and so on. Why is that? Because the United States wants this war to end. They don't want uh, the most splendid total possible victory. They don't want the defeat of Russia. They don't want the destruction of Russia. They want this war to end. The priority is to end the war. And the, on the other side, Mr. Putin's signal, we came two weeks ago, he said, all this talk about nuclear attacks and nuclear weapons from hotheads in Russia and so on, and fearful journalistic talk about tactical nuclear weapons. So tactical, it's something that doesn't exist, you know. It's a, a, fa a fiction uh, that these things. So uh, Putin says, I will not use nuclear weapons at all unless Russia faces imminent destruction. In other words, it is the same position as Israel has, India has, Pakistan has, the United States, which is we will strike back. We are not going to have a first strike. We're not going to drop a nuclear weapon because we're annoyed with somebody. So Putin makes this important signal, shutting up the extremists in Russia, who are not serious, but people like Medvedev, you know, their performers or something. And uh, these Burns, opens the channel to Narishkin, who is in the Kremlin, head of the foreign houses, and the guy he knows against the war. So these are the two sides. Now, the motives are different. Could the I just, could motive, I just inquire yeah. there? Because there's quite a lot already there. So, so to start with the Americans, what you're saying is you think they are looking for peace at this point, and the signal has changed, and it looks like they are preparing the ground for some kind of negotiation. Do I understand you correctly? Yes, because uh, you, the United States government wants out of this war, okay? They couldn't do that when the Russians were on the offensive and occupying parts of Ukraine and seemingly poised to, to occupy more. But now that the Russians have stabilized the front and, and uh, there's no, absolutely no threat whatsoever of a sudden Russian march on Kiev or anything of the sort, this is the moment to get out of this war. So do you think there's a difference between the kind of lower downs in the US administration who are making all these kind of hot-headed public pronunciations? The lower down are the people who have to deal with the situation today. Mainly there's a war on and their job is to push weapons out to Ukraine and to help Ukraine and to, uh, you know, strengthen sanctions against Russia and all the rest of it. But uh, on the upper level, the, clearly, the priority now is not to defend Kiev because Kiev has, has shown uh, Kiev is not in danger. The priority is to stop this war. And you think President Biden is on board with that? 
absolutely is on board with that, and that's why he didn't want uh, Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, because then, you, if the purpose was to fight and win, defeat Russia, uh, break up the Russian Federation, which is what hotheads have been saying, nobody in the government, but outside the government think tanks and so on that talk, they speculate and think, you know, Putin is the, is the evil man, uh, Russian Federation it must be dismantled and all that kind of stuff. None of that has any uh, acceptance whatsoever uh, by uh, Biden, by Burns, and by serious people like Blinken, the Secretary of State. Because it's quite a that's, it's quite a shift in thinking, isn't it? Because we're accustomed to think of Biden as someone who has drawn all these red lines and just busted all the way through them, given more and more weapons to Ukraine, and seems to have been quite encouraging of the whole situation. And now you think he's he's shifted. There was no enthusiasm to throw everything possible. There was always some level of caution, but now there's something else. That something else is that the fighting is stabilized. The profile of how to get out of this war is very clear. And that profile is that the Russians withdraw from all parts of Ukraine other than the two regions they claimed all along the oblasts, or Oblin, whatever the Ukrainian term for them, of Donetsk and Luhansk. These are the two regions, the substantial regions that are sometimes grouped and called the Donbass, okay? The Donbass is not a political administrative boundary, it is a region, uh, Donbass, it's actually a coal region. And then, so the, the only way out of this war is to have plebiscites in these two regions, where you ask people, do you want to be with Russia or with Ukraine? These have to be proper plebiscites. The word plebiscite itself implies the rules of 1919. There were many plebiscites, there were eight or nine of them after the First World War, and they all worked very well and stopped fighting between Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Germany and Denmark, Poland and Germany, Austria and Hungary. The and why was that? Because they were conducted under rules of thousands of inspectors, not to harassed individuals, you know, some uh, part-time Icelandic diplomat or something. No, thousands of inspectors in the area certifying the votes. For example, the only people who can vote in Donetsk and Luhansk are people who were born in Donetsk and Luhansk, and they can vote. Even if they're refugees in New Zealand, they get to vote. Somebody who was not born doesn't get to vote unless he has other documents showing that they've been living there for years, years, long before the uh, the crisis of 2014. So now you have a list of people entitled to vote, and then you have thousands of neutral inspectors from neutral countries like India, Israel, all these countries that they carefully avoided committing to either side, and, they, and then you have an outcome, and then the Russians are happy to accept it. For that, they have to withdraw from all the other parts of Ukraine that they still hold today. Is this uh, an Edward Lutvak plan, or is this something you've heard discussed? Do you think it's feasible? Do you think other people are talking about it? No, the, this is uh, the. It happens to be the plan that uh, that I've been writing about all along. But there happens to be no other plan. There is no other plan. So this, the plan of holding plebiscites may be a most ridiculous plan, but there's no other plan. Now, there are other consequences. One, of course, the Russians have to give up any claim or pretense that they have right to rule all of Ukraine or, or, or other parts of it. Just the two regions which have defined borders are very specific. Secondly, the, uh, the Ukrainians have to give up Crimea. Uh, Crimea was always Russian. It was transferred administratively by Kiev, by Khrushchev, et cetera, et cetera and they have to give up Crimea. End of story. And it, that will not be easy to do for, for Zelensky or Reznikov, the defense minister. Uh, they will be accused by extreme right of being uh, traitors or whatever. Both happen to be Jewish, which is a, what you might call a very uh, strange turn of events for Ukraine, which is a country uh, whose founding figure, uh, Bogdan Klemenitsky, um, was the only anti, you know, genocidal leader before Hitler. That was back in the 17th century and so on, never mind, but the, but Hitler is not celebrated in Germany. It was, Kalmanitsky has a city, uh, named after him a region, 
named after him, and ironically, the presidential guard, the the, the uh, is etc. So there are difficulties. The Russia, Ukraine. Ukraine, once Ukraine gives up Crimea, accepts these terms, Ukraine can enter NATO, can enter NATO. That's the big payoff. That's why you don't give it to them for free. And the Russians, on the other hand, withdraw from the other parts and they can go back to start mending the situation. And with this, there'll be lifting of sanctions and so on. Why? Why all this? Because Washington is watching China and China is boiling boiling. You have absurd situations. I want to come on to China, but just before we do that, do you think this will actually happen? Is this your idea of what should happen, or do you think it will happen? Well, I think there are two possibilities. Um, one is that it will happen, exactly as I said. The other is that it won't. And if it won't, we are looking at the seven years war, if we're lucky. Uh, it could be a 25-year war. Uh, but in the meantime, notice that on the Russian side, they've stabilized their economy. Their inflation is less than in the United Kingdom. It's less than the United States. Uh, their inflation is under control. They have stabilized it. They have made do with, they have maneuvered around the sanctions. There's a lot of things that used to be imported in Russia and now produced. Uh, the economy is growing. It's not growing brilliantly, but it's growing on average, more than the European Union. Uh, uh, and uh, so the, the Russians have not only stabilized the military in a sense of getting themselves organized, you know, replacing a lot of no goods with people who can fight, but also their economy and so on. Now, I, paradoxically, that's the very reason why Putin has his own reason. Just like Biden's reason has nothing to do with Europe and Ukraine is China. Putin's reason has nothing to do with tactical, operational, military tanks. It has to do with the fact that his director of the Russian Central Bank, the only person who has real authority, this woman, Naibulina, she's a Tatar woman who's, who runs the, uh, the Russian Central Bank, she has controlled inflation very well, which has only been one and a half percent, a dream for Europeans, and certainly the British. One and a half percent, not eight, whatever the real. But she is now signaling that uh, the the war has to not build up but scale down because otherwise she won't be able to control inflation. And in Russia, inflation is even worse than it is in France. In Nanterre, you know, the price of food went up as 17 percent in the last year. Another reason for people to burn shops, right? In Russia, it's one and a half percent. But she signals, that's it. If we continue, there's going to be inflation. And inflation is a catastrophe in Russia because people live in towns scattered over immense distances. And if they can't make it with the salary they get, they, it's not like they can do something else. You know, they can't go and get a job somewhere else down the street. They have to travel to, you know, uh, 200 miles. So... Putin's message is stop it, stop it, because otherwise inflation comes next. Your message is a lot more hopeful, in fact, if you're right, than what I'm hearing from a lot of the other people we've spoken to, because you're saying that you think the Americans are coming to a point where they want to end it, they were looking for a deal, and Russia is too, in which case we're in a better situation, at least a more likely to be peaceful situation than we thought we were. I mean, I can see tens or hundreds of objections that people will make to your plan, the Crimean Tatars, the, the, whether you can conduct a plebiscite just during a war zone, all of these things. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned, sorry, sorry if I interrupt you, I'm very glad you mentioned the Crimean Tatars, because before the Russians took Crimea, it belonged to the Giray rulers of Crimea, who were direct descendants of Genghis Khan, direct descendants of Genghis Khan. And the Giray rulers were expelled by the Russians, Catherine the Great. They went to Turkey, ended up in Ireland, and uh, they were in London. They're alive and well. The last I heard, the Giray was flying as a pilot for Ryanair. And the, if you want to give it to the rightful owners, you can give it to 
uh, a guy who calls himself Prince Giray and so on. But in fact, he's the direct descendant of Genghis Khan. There aren't that many around. You give it to him. But if they don't give Crimea to the Girays, they have to give it to Russia. Because the only city in Crimea that counts is Sevastopol. That's an entirely Russian city. It was, it, you know, uh, and so they can't be elided. Now, the other thing about being hopeful is that uh, when the head of the CIA, who moreover is not, as I say, one of his clerks who misled us all these years, but uh, the head of the CIA, Mr. Burns, calls his counterpart in Moscow to reassure him that then it implies a certain overall attitude um, to and uh, willingness to communicate. And finally, the refusal to say yes to the entry of Ukraine. So how, how does it happen in reality then? Because the public pronouncements are still so much uh, about 100% solidarity, Ukraine belongs in NATO, uh, they will get the support they need. And no way to get to a peaceful outcome of this if there is wavering in support of Ukraine. If you waver in supporting Ukraine in terms of trying to supply them with ammunition and with the money and with all the other things they're getting, if you waver, then the Russians have no reason to negotiate. They can say, we just have to, they're running out of patience. We are not. Our Russian army is getting stronger by the day. Their army is not. So if a wavering support would, would remove the incentive for the Russians to get out to stop. And you them. hear that a lot, but then who opens the negotiation. You've written about grand strategy. It's like a poker game. Who's going to go first to say, let's talk? So in my view, in my view, the negotiations um, are very easily opened through the channel that exists. And that channel is uh, Ambassador Burns, um, who is the head of CIA, with Mr. Narishkin, who was overruled when he tried to stop the war. And please notice, overruled, uh, but not fired. Uh, so Putin disregarded his advice and in fact publicly said, uh, you're wrong, you're completely wrong, I'm going to do this and so on, uh, but he didn't fire him, he's still in the Kremlin. We now have a channel in place and we have something to talk about. And do you think this, let's put a timeline on it, just, just because then we can get you back here if it doesn't happen or if it does. Tell me when it's going to happen. There's no reason, in my view, why uh, uh, the talks cannot begin uh, right away. There's no reason not to. Um, see, there is a sense of urgency uh, on both sides. Putin's sense of urgency is that now that he's stabilized the front, he doesn't want to come up destabilized. And on the American side is the urgency of turning to Asia and turning to China because of what's been happening in China, or more specifically with Mr. Xi Jinping. So, and I guess also the election. I mean, there, there, I, there is an argument. The election that is far away. The election is far away. And there's no can. This is not going to be an election where uh, who lost Ukraine or who won Ukraine is going to play a role. The, there's ambivalence in the Republican Party about all this. Uh, so the ele there's no election pressure. There is a pressure coming from the goings on in China, which have been noticed only up to a point. I would say that the European authorities, Mr. Joseph Borrell, the erstwhile left-wing Spaniard and all that stuff, Mr. Borrell has been quite timely in noticing the change in China and the reason to prioritize. He's so tell us, lay, lay it out for us then. Uh, in, in let's Let's move to China now then. What do you see as the threat and what are the signs and how should the West react? Well, let me just limit myself to factual statements. Three, about three weeks ago, Xi Jinping was, was conducting what they call an inspection of Mongolia, or to, you know, the inner Mongolia, which is the, the so-called uh, Mongolian Autonomous Republic and so on, which is, and there quite inappropriately, he starts talking about the global situation. Global situation is extremely... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dangerous. It's extremely unstable. It's explosive. And we have to be ready for anything, anything at all. And then, helpfully, the usual uh, uh, the sort of artful dodger professor from the uh, from the Peking University explained that when he was talking about was the danger of war, danger of war. Okay? Then Xi Jinping on July 7, which is not uh, of this year, not uh, terribly long ago, um, goes to the Eastern Theater Command in Nanjing. That is the co- Chinese overall Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever command in charge of the whole central oceanic space, which is including Taiwan. That's a command that will be dealing with the U.S. Navy, basically. It goes there and says, get ready for war. You must be ready for war. You have to have real combat readiness. You have to be ready to fight and to win. He is making a war speech. Now, what I don't think it's right for the rest of the world to pretend that Xi Jinping doesn't, is not China. And it's not right to ignore the fact that the guy there says, get ready for war, get ready for get fight and win. Now, at this point, you might say, yes, these are very alarming words. We should pay attention. We must not ignore them. But you say, maybe they are just words, right? Well, I direct you to something else. They issued a document, number one. It's called the number one document. That's the document where it's the Chinese state, you know, is president of China, together with the party, secretary general of the party, issued the document. And that's called document number one. It's called number one because it's supposed to set the overall policy. And that document number one is about food. We must increase the supply of grain. We must import less. We must be self-sufficient. We must, we, suddenly there's an urge. Here's China, hugely exported country that exports everything, who shouldn't have to, doesn't have to bother producing anything. They can import all the wheat they want from Argentina, from the United States, Canada, whatever. No, we must produce grain, okay? And more grain, and grain, and we have to have our own grain and salt. In other words, it's some kind of World War II type war where you run out of things. Then you might say, well, this is just uh, they want more agriculture done, but then comes something it sounds, else. It sounds a little bit like what you hear from Americans and Europeans about China onshore, trying to be more self-sufficient. The world is more very unstable. Good, very good. That's an excellent comment. That it could be just general. We want to onshore. We're deglobalizing. Of course, you're absolutely correct. But now comes the other thing, the clincher. For the last, uh, for many years now, 
the Chinese have been trying to reforest their the the the, the uh, landscape of bare hills. Uh, you know, China gets real ugly when you travel around because the hills are bare. They were deforested in the course of the centuries. The ugly deforested hills everywhere, uh, and so on. so they launched a program, a huge program, um, in I think 50, over 15 years to plant trees. Well, under this number one directive, they are deforesting. They are cutting trees to plant grain on slopes. And they're planting them even in perilous situations. Why? Because, of course, Communist Party officials all over China got mandatory orders. You must increase grain production. They don't have arable land. They, they have less arable land per capita than India. Okay. So what do they do? They're ordered to deforest. The authorities say, cut the trees to plant grain. Okay, so this is not like let's ensure whatever it is. It is emergency action. In Mongolia, it says war is imminent, and the Eastern Theater Command talking to the to the uh, Air Force and Army and so on said, get ready to fight to win, and they're cutting trees down to plant grain. By the way, when they did that, the rains came, and a lot of the stuff they planted was taken right down to the valley. Because, of course, in China, Communist Party officials everywhere don't apply common sense. There's no rewards for doing the right thing. There's only reward for obeying Beijing, and they did that. So what we have here is much more than words. We have actions and threats of war. So what do you think, if you're, if you're right that they are preparing for war, what does that war look like? How does it start? And what sort of actions might they take? Well, it, you know, it should be... Uh, it should be the kind of war that is fought by a nation like China. That is to say that Chinese history uh, is a history where small numbers of outnumbered nomads show up and they, they're met by a big Chinese army with these generals wearing brocades and they're quoting uh, phrases from Xi Jinping to each other. The nomads come in, destroy the Chinese army, invade China and rule it for 100 years or 200 years. It is a, a people has been ruled by conquest dynasties. Foreigners come in, the foreigners are outnumbered, the foreigners win. Because the Chinese apparently have many virtues, but fighting is not one of them. And the last of these conquest dynasties would have been, of course, the Japanese army, which was controlling Beijing, Shanghai, Guangdong, and uh, uh, huge parts of China. And they would still be there if it happened that Japan decided to have a war with the United States. And uh, if the United States had not defeated, when the moment, the day when the United States defeated Japan, Hiroshima and saw nuclear weapons, Japanese surrender, the Japanese army was still in occupation of Beijing, Shanghai, Guangdong, and all over China because neither the nationalists nor the communists were able to make a dent in fighting them. The, uh, the same as the Chinese with the Manchus who ruled them for 200 years, not a dent. So Xi Jinping is obsessed with that, is obsessed. And But are you saying you think China would lose? Yeah, of course they would lose. Naturally they would lose. Why wouldn't they have to lose? You have a Navy they just built the day before, which doesn't have 97 years of experience, right? And you have uh, the Air Force, the uh, Chinese Air Force is way uh, uh, inferior because, of course, they do not really have the jet engines that really work that well. So, of course, they will lose. But remember, there, you, a war with China that China loses and with there no nuclear weapons used will still be a catastrophe all over the place. It's enormous. China is everywhere economically. Uh, you know, you'd run out of handkerchiefs and all kinds of things. But the other thing is that war is always unpredictable. You don't know what happens next. Okay. But Xi Jinping is obsessed. He keeps using a very lethal word that this is the rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Rejuvenation. Here's this population getting older by the day because they have no babies. And he talks about rejuvenation. So this is all Mussolini stuff. Mussolini was obsessed that the Italians of all people should become a great fighting people. Great fighting people. He put all the kids in the uniform and gave them toy rifles and all that. This is Xi Jinping. So we are dealing with... I mean, a, there's another yeah. argument, which is that if you haven't got that many young people, you don't want to send them all out to war where half of them might 
not come back. Well, yes, and you might say the following, that the Chinese armed forces today would be, if they go to war, will be the first armed forces ever in the history of humanity composed of single children, the only vessel, the only vectors of their families. And the entire family lives for this one person because they don't have a brother or a sister. If that person dies, it's the end of that family. And by the way, Chinese families have, you know, their family names signified that would die with them and a complete tragedy. In fact, when they fought the Indians in March 2020 in the in the Ladakh, why did they fight? Well, because the Chinese army pushes, pushes forward to conquer them. When they lost four soldiers, four soldiers, they went on and on about mourning them, celebrating them, recreating them, making fake films of the dead officer with the baby, posthumous baby that was born after he died and he's holding him. So, so there, there are 1,001 reasons why China shouldn't fight anybody ever. But Xi Jinping is the leader of China, not me or you, and he keeps saying to them, get ready for war, and they're cutting trees in order to grow grain as if there were an immediate war emergency. This How does it start then in that scenario? It's all to do with Taiwan, presumably. There's a some kind of blockade or actual invasion of Taiwan. Is that what you think will happen and, and potentially quite soon? I have no idea because, as I say, cutting trees on slopes where uh, they get rain where the crops are then ruined by the first rainstorm. You are now out. You see, this is not Ukraine. This is not the United States, Russia, Ukraine, NATO, Europe, where people know who they are, what they want, and so on. This is a different realm. This is the realm where he keeps using a word translated in English as rejuvenation. Rejuvenation. There has to be this war to rejuvenate, okay? This has this vision of the Chinese as a decadent people of long fingernailed mandarins who can't fight and it obsesses him. And so we're, we're not, uh, you cannot have a, a reasonable scenario because in the, if it were a Taiwan scenario, then that would be automatically a limited war, which would not concern grain supplies for which you would not have to uh, cut trees down on slopes. Okay, so you actually think it's you think it's worse than Taiwan. You think it's it's potentially would be worse than just a blockade or an invasion of Taiwan. It might involve something else. I'm trying to understand what what could be the alternative. Okay, first of all, this is not something that can be put in easily. This is not Ukraine Russia. Okay, this is not America Russia Ukraine Europe. This is this is something else. This is a national leader. He's in complete control. He is the sole dictator. There is no China. There's no China. There's only Xi Jinping. Uh, he wakes up in the morning, it feels like. Let's say that the doctor tells him that he has cancer. He might decide that he has to fight and win this war because, because otherwise he won't be around to do it. Um, you know, m maybe we need more years to prepare for it, but I'm going to be dead, so I better start it. This is, by the way, how we got World War II, you know, because the Germans were planning to start the war maybe in 1945, but Adolf Hitler felt that he might not be around, so therefore he accepted. But what, what else might... We're like in it, that world, and, and we... But, but and what else might he do other than Taiwan? That's my question. It's the only justification laid out is Taiwan. It would be Taiwan. They would try to, to uh, you know, attack Taiwan. And of course, uh, half the Taiwanese generals have their apartments in Xiamen, you know, on the coast there, Fujian coast, and uh, probably uh, getting ready to, you know, surrender and so on. Uh, you know, the Taiwanese are Chinese. <laughs> They're Chinese. Therefore, they're unable to be serious about any military enterprise. If you look, this is a 23 million people, very rich country, Taiwan, and they ought to be able to have, a, a, you know, a, re, a fast recall militia, it's not a big place, to be able to put 3 million people in uniform with anti-tank missiles and so on. Nothing of the kind. All they want is to buy fancy aircraft and stuff like that. So a war involving China and Taiwan is is uh, that kind of war, you know, it's a, a, cult, a sort of theatrical performance. But I'm just saying, what 
American leaders, and I'm glad to say key European figures have understood is that when somebody keeps talking about war, you cannot not listen. And that means that means settle Ukraine, at least settle Ukraine and not to have to deal with two different things. Because so are you saying in your private conversations with leaders in the US or in Europe, you get the impression they have a similar view to you or that the the focus of attention no, is no, moving? Only some of them, some of them. For example, Joseph Borrell, very significant because Joseph Borrell was originally is a sort of Spanish socialist or something like that, left wing guy, very far removed from anything to do with strategy, deterrence, peace, war. But he's been at this job for years. And if you listen to Borrell, he starts saying, you know, uh, European countries should make an effort to be there. He wants, you know, you have a, you know, Netherlands has has a ship that can go to the Far East and the Italians is encouraging the Italians to do a visit at least to Japan with their aircraft carrier group. He wants the Europeans to to be active in that area because he sees the danger. Secondly, as you know, only in December 2020, which is not a terribly long time ago, uh, Europe was poised to sign a comprehensive investment agreement with China, comprehensive agreement that would have really escalated the interactions and so on. And that was negotiated by the people who are still there, you know, Ursula, whatever, uh, signed it on principle December 20th, 2020. And then it went before the European Parliament. The European Parliament raised obvious questions, such as forced labor in Xinjiang, other, other questions. And that should have then led to a negotiation. Instead of a negotiation, the uh, Wang Yi, Wang Yi, who is Xi Jinping's foreign policy guy, who is now a Politburo member and everything else, Wang Yi uh, starts making statements like, who the hell are these people asking us to shut up, get on with it, sign the document. He, Wang Yi, in order to please Xi Jinping, to be the tough, the tough Chinese, not the soft, mellifluous, you know, Mandarin who makes the... Uh, he started shouting at Europeans and destroyed the treaty. The people who negotiated the treaty understood what was going on. Incidentally, incidentally, what, to tell you that there is no China at all, China does not exist. There's only Xi Jinping and how he feels today. The, Wang Yi is the best proof. He was ambassador to Japan. He was the most courteous and polite and friendly and social. He kept inviting people to play golf and everything. I ran into him in Beijing because I was advisor to uh, the uh, Abe Shinzo, the, the prime minister of Japan who rebuilt the you know, Japanese 12 year tenure to build Japan and so on. I was his advisor often in Beijing. I many times met Wang Yi, but I didn't meet, I didn't have, negotiations with him or anything. I mean, I just went, and he was the most convivial possible person. In order to, when the moment Xi Jinping takes over, Wang Yi changes, his tone changes, his manner changes, his hand gestures changes, and we have the current Wang Yi. So we are dealing with free-floating bellicosity, not connected to any rational purpose, okay? And this is what we're dealing with. And Joseph Borrell picked it up. Ursula von der Leyen picked it up. And I think individual politicians picked it up. Most European politicians cannot pick anything like that because, as you know, they're besieged by domestic concerns. I have two questions, if I may. So the first is, do you think this, is, this applies to both Republicans and Democrats in the US? Because we had a guy called Elbridge Colby, who is a foreign policy advisor to Republican candidates and will probably be influential on the Republican nominee, who was sounding a little bit like you. He said he thinks the energy should move away from Europe and focus should be on China. You don't think, at least the normal narrative, is that the Democrats are, are different. In your judgment, are they also beginning to move focus away from Europe and focus on China? Elbridge Colby is a person who was already assistant secretary, secretary of defense or something, is obviously going to play a role in the government, uh, in American foreign policy in coming years. Now, he is representative of the, I would say, the more informed, uh, uh, you know, people who are more informed, um, but even people who are less informed than Colby feels it. You know, they, there are too many signals coming. 
Uh, you know, Xi Jinping makes 17 speeches calling for war, and most people ignore 16 of them, but they pick one up, and it's startling. You know? And do you think Jake Sullivan and, and Democrat advisors are noticing this too? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, pre, uh, the, when the head of, of your national intelligence calls the Russian counterpart to reassure him that there are no evil intentions and so on, is... And not you know, because you have something else to worry about, which is more, more you know, unlimited. And this has also another implication. Unlike a lot of hotheads, they don't want the breakup of the Russian Federation. The Russian Federation, as it is, is not strong enough to contain China as much as we would wish in countries in between, like Mongolia, immense country, Mongolia, full of resources which would fall to China if Russia were weaker. And Kazakhstan, another huge country, seventh largest in the world, full of resources, etc. So my second question then is, where does this leave Europe? Where does it leave NATO and European security? Because if the American focus is going to move away and all of this energy is going to be directed towards China, how is Europe going to defend itself? Well, first of all, it's, the Americans are not going to pack up and go and do it all. Secondly, uh, in Asia itself, there is a thing called the partner NATO partner group: Japan, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, and and, and uh, we're already signing with there. The confronting of China does not require the resources that are involved in the Ukraine war. Okay, armed divisions are not. You don't need armored divisions. You don't need this type of tactical aviation. It's different military forces altogether. There is actually, uh, uh, there's no, it's not like you're pulling the blanket from your feet back and down and so on. You don't have a simple mechanical resource allocation problem. You do have a policy focus problem. And you have another big problem, huge problem is, that if China is what it is, um, if that is the threat, you don't want Russia to fall apart. You have been observing the international scene for decades. I hope that's not rude to say. Maybe more than four or even up to five decades that you've been doing yeah, this. For a, a century or two, yes. For, yes. for a, uh, a job at a very high level. How does the moment we're in now compare to earlier moments with perceived danger. Do you think we are in a very dangerous moment? Do you worry for the, for the world in coming years? Or do you think we're going to get through it and everything's going to be okay? If Xi Jinping is what I think he is, namely Mussolini, not Hitler, but Mussolini, somebody who's all about pretending, all about wanting his people to be a great warrior nation, like poor Mussolini did. You know, Mussolini's slogan was, better one day as a lion than 100 years as a sheep. Uh, the demoralizing thought is the tyrannicide, the killing of tyrants, tyrannicide, the moral obligation to kill the tyrant, to prevent him from killing a lot of people, tyrannicide has fallen into desuetude. I mean, people, uh, what we need to propagate tyrannicide, instead of propagating multi-gender or whatever it is people propagating, we should propagate tyrannicide. You have a tyrant, kill the bastard. If that doesn't happen, you think we're in a, we have a dangerous future then? We have a dangerous future because of individuals. Because of Mr. Xi Jinping's personal feeling that the Chinese need a war to rejuvenate. The You know, this This is the English translation, is make young again. I was, was thinking we would conclude there with, a, with either a, a positive note or a, a note of warning. It seems like it all, for you, hinges on this character of Xi Jinping and, and how he turns out. Unfortunately, it's very demoralizing. It's depressing that we are, here we are, uh, we did not advance at all because we're still dependent on single people. There's no Turkey, there's only Erdogan. He changes his mind from one day to the other. There's Xi Jinping who's obsessed, obsessed. And, you know, we've we have had Saddam Hussein and some of these figures keep coming up and it is demoralizing that it's not a national thing, it's not rational, it's not manageable because it depends on the whims and wishes of one person because of 
the failure of the Chinese to kill the bastard. It's their duty to get rid of him, you know, run him over, uh, but they don't do it. Just the same as the Iraqis went down the drain with Saddam Hussein, they were not able to kill the bastard. Well, it's a sober, a sobering note to end on, Edward. But as always, really great to hear your thoughts. And thank you for sharing them with us at such length today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Edward N. Lutbach, someone who has seen a lot of things, spoken to many more presidents and prime ministers, I suspect, than you or I over the years, not holding back. Whether you agreed or not with his analysis, it's always good to hear someone unafraid to say it how they see it. Thanks to Edward and thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.